1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from Ukraine. And we speak to journalist Farida Rustamova, who's been talking to members of Russia's elites, gauging attitudes to the war and Vladimir Putin's handling of it.
2: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure.
3: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 6th of October, Day 225. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, our Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, and our guest, independent journalist Farida Rustamova. I started by asking Don for the latest updates from the battlefront.
0: Afternoon, David. Hi, everybody. A, a lot of blasts last night in the city of Zaporizhia. So this is uh, obviously in the in the south of the country, Zaporizhia. The city is about thirty k's just northeast of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. That's that's slightly further south and west. Round the, they're both on the on the Dnipro River, but the power plant is some distance away. So this is not. An attack on the nuclear power plant, but an attack on the city uh, so far reports that two civilians killed five missing a number of people pulled from the rubble, including a three year old girl pulled alive from the from the rubble. The area is reported as being mostly residential and businesses no seemingly no military target there whatsoever uh, looks likely re- reported as um, the weapon used was S three hundred. Well, an S three hundred, which is primarily an air defence weapon, so to, to fire at uh, uh, aircraft, jets, and, and uh, helicopters, and what have you. But it does have a secondary mode of the of the surface to surface role however in that ro- in that mode it is very very inaccurate it's not it's not designed for that primarily that it's just i mean it's largely physics that you know you launch something in the air it's going to go bang where it, where it lands so the s-300 is not that accurate in its secondary mode um which this seems to i don't it doesn't sound as if they were firing at anything any part of the ukrainian air force um in the area so it looks like it's as we've seen recently with the the, the massive degradation that Russia has, has suffered in, in its precision-guided munitions, they're now repurposing other weapons. Um, and like I say, it will still go bang at the end of it. But if you repurpose weapons, so in this case, a, a primarily a surface-to-air missile, we've seen anti-ship missiles repurposed and so on and so forth. If you If you use them for what they're not designed for necessarily, then they're not going to... Be anywhere near as accurate as they as they purport to be in their primary role. So this looks like it was just a you know another casual use of of violence by Russia against a largely residential area, killing civilians. Um, this this seems to be the only response they've got at the moment. They've not gone forward. I can't think of anywhere they've gone forward. It was it was a few weeks ago when we were saying they are still grinding forward at a kilometre a week, yada yada. Um, we're not even saying that now. They don't seem to be going forward anywhere. This just seems to be the only response they can and can have against the, the, the Ukrainian ad- advances. Um, speaking of which, elsewhere, Ukraine is still pushing into the uh, Luhansk Oblast. So yesterday I made the point that we were talking about the uh, pushing on from the, the Kharkiv, uh, the Kharkiv front in the northeast of the country. They're now so far to the east that it's not no longer appropriate. I don't think that we talk about the Kharkiv front. They, Ukraine is over the border line and into Luhansk. Um, not in not in great numbers, not in great, uh, you, you know, huge pieces of territory, but but they are there. Um, there seems to be no significant line of, of Russian defence. Uh, and the towns, small towns, uh, Revka and Makivka, which are about, they're, they're just inside the Luhansk Oblast. They are 10 k's west of the main north-south road linking uh, Svatove and Severdenets, Lissachank, that area. So big resupply routes. These towns are, if this is representing where ukraine have pushed then this is um, a little way to the west still of that main supply route but if if they get that far then the route down into Severodonetsk and the sister city right next door just across the river the Severodonetsk river um of a list of chance they, they were looking extremely vulnerable and then you're into luhansk itself the city of, of luhansk and of course this is significant not only because it's maintaining that momentum and it seems as if russia have yet to uh, coalesce around any form of geographic entity to, to, to hold a line of defence and start as they would wish to start pushing back but of course it's, it's particularly significant because it was only last week that, that Putin had his great rock and roll concert to um, you know, annex territories and say everything's going swimmingly and the first thing that happens is he lost the city of Liman and now he's losing towns inside the Luhansk Oblast so very very significant there also pushes uh, Ukraine pushes in, in the south around Hezon um, f- fewer reports of that area so i don't want to try and uh, claim that they've uh, made any further advances from that rather impressive advance in the last few days coming down the dinipro river but it is it is clear that there's still intense pressure on russian forces um in uh, in the
1: hezon area and i'll pause there well, thank you very much uh Dom. uh francis sternly there's been some political developments uh to the west in europe can you take us through what's happening at this
2: inaugural prague summit Thanks, David. Yes, this is the inaugural meeting of 44 countries that will join the European Political Community, or the EPC as it's known. They're meeting in Prague as we speak, and uh, our roving reporter and regular on this podcast, Joe Barnes, will be there. So keep an eye out on the website for reports from him, and I imagine we'll have him on the podcast perhaps tomorrow or early next week to talk about his findings What is this? Well, it's the brainchild of French President Emmanuel Macron. It brings together the 27 member states of the European Union and 17 other countries, including several that are waiting to join the bloc and the only one, of course, ever to leave it, which is the United Kingdom. The UK are said to have quite a prominent role in this, whilst France is the architect. It's believed that the significant military role that Britain has played in the war in Ukraine will feed into its significance on what is a summit really where Ukraine and energy are its central thrust. And I'll just quote the British Prime Minister Liz Truss, because she's made some remarks prior to the meeting that have been released to the media. She said that she will be urging leaders to stand united in the face of Russian aggression as Europe faces, quote, its biggest crisis since the Second World War, close quote. Um, she'll obviously also say uh, go on and, and and talk about the importance of, of unity and resolve, as as the politicians usually do. But she will also say we must continue to stand firm to ensure that Ukraine wins this war, but also to deal with the strategic challenges that it has exposed. And as I say, the main focus of this summit is really the strategic challenges, challenges, uh, They think there's going to be a lot of uh, background discussions in relation to making sure that an energy cap is enforced. That I was talking about at length yesterday and the day before this energy cap being vital to ensure that Russia doesn't profit uh, from the extraordinary now high cost of of, of Russian energy and and energy more generally. So that being enforced not only within the EU, but also more broadly and more widely is, I think, a a, paramount part of this. But the, the, the broader message, and this is, I think, the most significant part of it, is that whatever is concluded is secondary to its fundamental point, which is to show Russia and to show the world that there is a new order a new defense order that it is possible that is possible macron has said this but also uh, the main negotiator on the part of the european union is also there and has actually said that uh, that this will be a meeting that will help build a new order uh, macron said it doesn't mean we want to exclude russia forever but this russia putin's russia does not have a seat so as i say it's meeting as we speak Nothing has come out of it yet, but the significance of this is very profound. And I think we can expect it to have quite a significant influence on the debates in the coming days and weeks as as we look forward to what's taking place, not only on the battlefront, but in the political sphere.
1: Well, thank you, Dom, and thank you very much, Francis. Before, Just before we invite our guest Farida to the chat, Francis and Dom, you both brought up this this piece from uh, Timothy Snyder, Professor of History at Yale, who is responsible for some rather excellent YouTube videos and lectures on Ukrainian history. Uh, you both wanted to talk about this, and I think this might be a nice way to set up um, what we're going to speak about with Farida and the attitudes and opinions and thoughts of the Russian elite. So, uh, Dom and Francis, would you take us through, what does Timothy Snyder say, what is his argument?
2: Sure, well, I'll very quickly condense it, and then Dom I'm sure will have um, some deeper insights based on what Timothy is saying in, the, in terms of the military and political ramification of this. But broadly speaking, his argument is that the earth is moving under Putin's feet as we speak. And I quote here, his political career has been based on using controlled media to transform foreign policy into soothing spectacle. In other words, regime survival has depended upon two premises. What happens on television is more important than what happens in reality. And what happens abroad is more important than what happens at home. It seems to me that these premises no longer hold. With mobilization, the distinction between at home and abroad has been broken. With lost battles, the distinction between television and reality has been weakened. Reality is starting to matter more than television for the first time, and Russia will start to matter more than Ukraine. He then goes on in the piece to talk about prominent Russian political figures who are calling for further escalation of the war and who are mocking Russian high command. And he concludes by saying that as Ukraine continues to win battles, one reversal is accompanied by another. The televisual yields to the real, and the Ukrainian campaign yields to a struggle for power in Russia. In such a struggle, it makes no sense to have armed allies far away in Ukraine who might be more usefully deployed in Russia, not necessarily in an armed conflict, although this cannot be ruled out entirely, but to deter others and protect oneself. For all of the actors concerned, it might be bad to lose in Ukraine, but it is worse to lose in Russia. If this is what is coming, Putin will need no excuse to pull out from Ukraine since he will be doing so for his own political survival. For all of his personal attachment to his odd ideas about Ukraine, I take it that he is more attached to power. So very, very interesting analysis and one, as I say, that I'm sure Dom has has some more thoughts on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting concept um, boiled down to. Uh, some central themes, and I, I don't think by boiling it down that he's that he's glossed over any of the detail. I think it is fair to see it uh, in this way. He's basically saying that that as long as the war in terms of the, in the eyes of the Russian people, as long as the war is over there and just about the military, Putin's fine. As soon as it comes here inside Russia and starts bleeding into politics, he's, he's not fine. And Timothy Snyder makes the point that mobilisation was was that, that moment of crossover because mobilisation brought the issue into inside Russia and people started saying what? You, hang on, I thought this was a special military run around the block. You say, you're saying what? You need thousands more troops? And so not only does it bring it home to them but they start taking, started to take more of an interest and then we started hearing of the defeats and the, the Russian, um, the, the, the ultra nationalist blogger community that we've spoken about many times, they they became more vocal, and so suddenly it started bleeding from from just the heavy metal military game into politics. It came home uh, with a vengeance, and, um, and 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 Putin could no longer say, well, you know, it's just it's just over there. Trust what you see on the media, which of course he controls. And it, so it's a very interesting article. I recommend people go and have a look at Timothy Snyder's smartest pieces, professor of history at Yale. He knows his uh knows his onions, as I think I got criticized for the other day when I wasn't here and my back was turned. But anyway, he knows his stuff. Um very interesting not only is it worth worth your time to read it and a few minutes reading it but but if we think about what's happened in the last couple of days so ramzan kadyrov the the chechen leader apparently uh promoted to general yesterday P- putin has promoted him to general um and you've also got the wagner group under yevgeny prigozhin now these are the chechens under kadyrov and uh, and wagner group under prigozhin micro yeah you know, private armies basically and the question's well, why haven't they been heavily committed? Why aren't they taking massive casualties? We know the Wagner Group is active around the, the city of Bangwut, but it's not really doing much. Now, does that say that it's not using its most experienced troops? It's just using these guys. It's it's recently taken out of the jails and what have you. Likewise, the Chechens, not not really seeing much of them. Where, where are they? What, what are they doing? So is Putin starting to think, hang on a second, I, I need a bit of an insurance policy here. Um, I need to keep these guys sweet. I need to keep them on side. Let's... Um, let's uh, uh let let's make Kadarov a, a general start start looking more domestically thinking more domestically, thinking about his own survival um you know in a in a kleptocratic state. I don't think there is such a thing as political ambition; there is only survival, so you've got these characters Kadarov and Progoian, who are thinking about their own survival, which sort of, for the moment neatly coalesces around looking after putin and I just wonder if the war coming home to Putin means that he's not. Using these, let me say, more experienced troops to win the war, is now his mind's starting to think about winning his own survival, the, the the elongation of his of his regime. And we saw last night footage of um, some Wagner Group people being very heavily arrested by. Uh, we think Russian military people, or there seems to be a bit of a power spat between Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group. So there seems to be some sort of internal power dynamics around here, which which play exactly into what Timothy Snyder is saying. So so all in all, very interesting piece, and and, and
2: with a very very uh, uh, contemporary feel to it. If I could just come back on on one thing as well. I think it's worth commenting on the fact that his argument is a counter to the one that's quite commonly been made, that with the mobilisation and with the escalation of the war, that this will lead to a unification within Russia society amongst the elites and among the people as the existential threat, supposed existential, existential threat, increases. This much more nuanced approach says that actually that is not the case. Now, I'm not arguing either way, which which I think is more valid, but it's a, an interesting piece of analysis nonetheless. And as I say, I'd echo Dom that this is one that people are well worth reading on, on Timothy Schneider's st- substack.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Dom and Francis, for that. A theme listeners will have heard in all of that is this idea of what do the Russian elites think? W- what are they saying to each other? What are the opinions and thoughts behind closed doors? And we've got, I think, one of the best journalists to talk about that, Farida uh, Rustamova. Farida, thank you so much for your time today. Would you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about some of the work you've been doing?
3: Thanks for having me. Well, I've been I've, I've been actually covering uh, this whole thing about about what Russian elites do think about what's going on around them and what, Putin does to them too, actually, since the very beginning of the war. And my latest piece is uh, kind of, you know, a third part of my. I, can, I think I can call it already kind of research <laughs> going on. Uh, so yeah, I think it's it, even though it, it is quite difficult now to, you know, extract some genuine uh, opinion from from the people uh, in power in Russia. The journalists who uh, who have been working uh, for a long time uh, and are familiar with with some sources in Russia still uh, manage to, uh, you know, talk to to the people from among Russian elites. And I am one, one, one of them. Only only one of them, actually. I, I uh, have to point this out. There are many many of my colleagues who do the same job, and I. I I do appreciate that. It's it's a, not
1: an easiest one to do. Well, thanks, Farida. So we saw uh, an article um, you wrote about this on on your wonderful Substack, uh, Farid Daily. If people want to go and read that and follow Farida there, um, and <clears throat> it's now on the Telegraph site. Our, our headline is Vladimir Putin is making rash and secretive decisions in the face of defeats. Kremlin insiders warn. So can you tell us? Roughly, you know, who did you speak to and what were the big takeaways for you? What, what did you learn from what they said?
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, at first, I, I would like to point out that the people we spoke to, I mean, me and my uh, co-author, Maxim uh they are not from the military uh, or they're not someone uh, among the heads of the law enforcement in Russia. We can call them so, so these people. They are not so-called Silovikis, uh and we can call them kind of civil elites. So these people are uh, they were they were carefully distilled for more than twenty years, and that the, the key reason why they were able to build their careers and put a system is is their loyalty and complete absence of their personal political ambition. So what these people are experiencing now is something reminiscent of that scene last on uh, the 24th of February when the invasion began. After Putin declared mobilization, the war is uh, no longer a thousand kilometers away from, from Moscow, where most of members of, of the Russian elite live. Their relatives, friends and colleagues are being called up and sent to the front. And, and, and Russian establishment basically is panicking and trying to save their loved ones and colleagues from the draft. And, and I think that this is the main shift in their mood since February. That, that the war is not a distant special military operation, so-called special military operation, anymore. And it has come to Russia now, in a, in a sense, and to their homes too.
1: You mentioned just then their loyalty and how these people are in the position they are because of their loyalty to Putin. Did you get the sense that that might be seeping away, that because of what's happened over the past seven months, there's less loyalty to Putin now? Did you get that sense from your interviewees?
3: I wouldn't say that I mean we, we, we cannot call this this attitude I mean cu- cu- the, the current moods some kind of cracks in the elite you know uh, I would call it uh, you know it, it, it's I think it's a sign of uh, of their own kind of inner struggle and their own despair and uh, learn helplessness that they, they realize that the civil elite—they realize that they cannot oppose to this. That they simply don't have enough resources. Again, as I said, they were distilled, uh, and the main criteria was was that they they do not they cannot you know organize among each other. They cannot build any any. Structure, or I don't know, or even even we can say that the, the the criteria was that they are not able to organize any kind of coup, you know. So uh, I, I I don't think that they they can be uh, they can oppose inside of them. I mean, to those things that are happening, what Putin is doing, but they are not able to express it in any way. Just I mean, I, I think that even even among each other. I don't think that they even discuss the, the, those questions among each other.
1: And can I ask, um, the, the headline of the piece for The Telegraph you've written is about Putin himself. As Just to repeat it, he's making rash and secretive decisions in the face of defeats. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? What What are your sources telling you about his state of mind and his behaviour?
3: So this decision of Putin's was unexpected. Uh, to many people, but was kind of expected by Russian elite, but the, it was not desired certainly. So the mobilization is unpopular decision, not only among Russian population but among elites too. And uh, uh, the, the, how my how sources explain this, the, this decision, the, the decision to announce uh, mobilization and to annex Ukrainian territories. Uh, the reason is that. Uh, is, is Ukrainian. Of course, at first, Ukrainian counter, counter offensive. Putin cannot lose, so he needs to really urgently turn the situation around. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, th- this decision is kind of, uh, you know, in terms of his um, old uh, profession, uh, he used to be uh, the uh, FSB director, uh, it's, it's a KGB uh, successor. Uh, it's, it's kind of and it's, it's again, it's a new special operation. So the, the, the decision that is made uh, very um, so, so he, he, he did not aware any anyone of it, of it, and no one was prepared. And this is uh, also a sign of, of a total lack of coordination. And my sources say that Putin tells everyone different things. So basically, there is no center of of decision-making. And and it's it's, it's just a mess. And and it's not only about about some political decisions, it's about decisions uh, on uh, how to run the war. And nobody... One of my sources, he, he, he joked that uh nobody knows what we i mean Russian army what we were doing in Kharkiv. No one has a clue uh and, and I think that this is a very telling uh quote uh and uh, yeah, I mean for now uh it's just uh it's it 's another surprising move from Putin. Everyone's frustrated but can cannot do anything with it just to obey unfortunately. <laughs>
1: You mentioned in your article that a few people had said that nobody really had any idea how this might end. Could you tell us a little bit more about that what What did they say about where where they think that this is going for 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 them and for, for russia itself
3: um well the main thing uh I noticed this time when I talked to my sources is that when I ask them how do they see uh the future and how do they think i mean Right after Ukrainian counteroffensive, the, the, these thoughts actually came to mind of, of many people. Uh, what would happen if Russia lose? Uh, and many of them, they, they say they they, they, t- they told me that they cannot imagine even they cannot even imagine this scenario. And uh, those. Uh, acquaintances of mine who support the war, they just simply uh, repeat, they keep repeating the the, the propaganda narratives that the West wants to destroy Russia and the defeat in a war with Ukraine would mean Russia's demise. But uh, nobody knows the the, the Putin's strategy, nobody knows his plan, If, if there is one, and that's Another reason why nobody's uh, able to describe any sort of you know ending of of, of, of everything of, of this crazy war and uh, they, they only uh, they can only uh, you know kind of um, um, perceive what is what what Putin is doing uh, without any dissent uh, but at the same time, that they, they feel the same uncertainty, uh, feel the lack of experience, the, the lack of information and coordination. So no, there, there is no answer. There is no clear answer. I, I, I didn't hear any single uh, single clear answer to, to the question how this all is going to be finished. The only thing that I, I heard from my sources, from from few of them, that they are only praying that the war is not going to go nuclear. Only praying, you know? I mean, it says a lot.
1: Can I ask, when you're speaking to to these people, do you get any sense of um, sympathy for what Ukrainians are going through during the invasion or, or any sense of guilt at all?
3: Well, um, as I said, uh, the, the key... Criteria for those people, uh, for to be able to remain in the system, is their loyalty, and the other thing uh, is, uh, you know, lack of of uh, uh, reflection of of what they do. I mean, Russian and Ukrainian people were historically close, and many many of of Russian people, uh, including people from Russian elite. They do have uh, relatives in Ukraine. They, they or, or they have uh, uh, their roots coming from Ukraine. But still, um, th- 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 those who uh, w- 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 my acquaintances, some of them who don't, who, who actually don't support the war, but they are trying to convince themselves that they are doing the right thing, remaining in the system. They keep repeating this, those narratives about Nazis about uh ukrainians being traitors and they are not our so-called brothers anymore but they betray us russians um and but the other thing uh um is that the, the people who actually really uh, oppose war, at least among you know at least what they talk what what they are talking to me uh is that they do realize what the what, what Russian army is doing in Ukraine, but they don't feel guilty for that. They blame Putin. They consider themselves as kind of uh, hostages of the system, and they don't want to uh, uh, acknowledge the That They blame Putin, just like many people in Russia, too.
1: Farida, from what you've said, two big things are coming out to me. One is that it sounds as if lots of people that you speak to are sort of in denial because they they, they recognise that it's going badly but don't know how it might end or where it's going. And also, in a political sense, it sounds, from from what people are telling you, that the political operation in the Kremlin is, is a total mess. Are those two things fair?
3: Yes, yes. I mean, this is exactly what, what is going on. I mean, it it looks like uh, there is some kind of order in the system and that, that there is a plan because that's what people keep Putin keeps saying. And he tries to convince everyone that he has a plan and that everything is going according to a plan. But I mean, uh, you probably have seen this um, uh, on, on September 13th, when Putin invited uh, members of Russian elite to the Kremlin uh, to be the witnesses of the signing of those annexation treaties, there were many um, uh, memes about it. The, the faces of the members of Russian elite: complete despair, and basically, you know, they look like like people who are awaiting some kind of catastrophe, and that's exactly what 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 they feel. It was it was literally on their faces on that day.
1: Well, Farida, thank you so, so much for that. I thought that was an absolutely invaluable look inside how the Russian elites are thinking about the invasion and their attitudes to Putin. So thank you for taking us um, with you on your reporting. Dom and Francis, you've been listening to all of this. Do you have any questions?
2: I do, yes. Thank you so much, Farida. And I think your piece, uh, as I said earlier in the week on the podcast, is is among some of the most important that, that I've read recently about the war and particularly on this uncertain question about the state of the Russian elite. So to echo what David was saying, I highly recommend that people uh, read the piece who are listening to this. Um, My question actually is a little moving away from the Russian elite, but you're obviously in a very unique position because you're an ex-BBC journalist. You're somebody who is now independent and is talking to people in Russia, but you also see the Western media reporting on Ukraine, including us, of course. And I just wonder... Whether there's anything from that that you any observations you would make, perhaps anything that Western media is missing, anything Western media is perhaps doing better than Russian media, just any observations you have on that would be really fascinating to hear.
3: Oh, that's that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, thank you for that. I mean, uh, I, I would say that um, Western media and all the foreign media have a unique. Uh, position right now uh, because you actually can keep distance from this conflict. I don't mean that you are I don't know, cold or um, non-sympathetic but uh, that you can be kind of I don't know uh, we'll, we'll keep this journalistic position uh, more I mean, I mean more like more clear than, than, than Russian journalists for example because us Russian journalists we I mean, we are finding ourselves in a very difficult position because uh, on the one hand you have to uh, stay uh, objective. but it is so very hard in this conflict because you are kind of part of it just because you are Russian and it is true. And I think that the distance that, that the, I mean, thank God that we have uh, Western media uh, covering this conflict, because otherwise, I think we just wouldn't, wouldn't have any clear and unbiased judgment. Uh, I mean, totally unbiased, because, uh, as I said, for Russian journalists, it's an extremely hard uh, challenge. Uh, right now to to cover uh, all the aspects of this conflict.
2: Thank you for that. And just one final question from from me, if I may, which is relating to that. um, How much Western media do you think the average member of the Russian elite reads? And what do they read if they do?
3: Well, I think that... uh, Actually, many members of Russian elite do read Western media. they do uh, speak English <laughs> and they do read in English. Um, you might have seen many uh, interviews uh, in in for example British media or or American media uh, I mean interviews with with the, with uh, Russian oligarchs or uh, uh, I, I don't know uh, I mean, One of the uh, people who come to my mind right now who speaks fluent English is is Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Shustin. And I'm absolutely sure that he knows, uh, that he keeps reading the Western media uh, when he has time, of course. Um, I think that uh, they actually, uh, this double thinking is one of the reasons why they do read. Uh, Western media. And also uh, the other reason is that they, they actually have to get uh, some uh, actual information somewhere. I mean, they cannot uh, they don't need to consume propaganda because they already know what, what, what they're telling there. I mean, the, the Putin's propagandists. Uh, but they need to uh, uh, get the, 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 the real picture of what is going on uh, in uh, f- in order to, at least in order to uh, be able to save their money, for example, uh, to be able to uh, save their property and to, to, to be uh, generally uh, aware of, of what's going on, to be able to care about their families too in these uh, circumstances when they are all being sanctioned. So yeah, I mean, I, I I'm absolutely sure that they uh, reading and watching everything <laughs> very carefully.
0: Farida, hi, it's uh, Dom here. I wonder if I could jump in, please. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm I'm really interested in in your view on whether the the elites you describe have the the psychological scaffolding to uh, well contemplate and process defeat because they won't they won't have grown up in the with the With the democratic sort of systems and understanding that 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 we would recognize uh, and the sheer mental effort it must have taken them for their entire career their lives to survive in in the system over there, so I just wonder if if you if you would think how how was the defeat in Afghanistan perceived by these by these people how was the one thousand nine hundred and ninety one coup perceived by these people are are they ready to take on board the the thinking about well the effort about how to think about a a defeat let alone what to think about it and what to do about it I mean, are, are they are they going to crumble is it, is it, are the institutions ready for what this what it might mean i'm not i'm not counting any chickens about the you know the, the possible outcome of the, of this war but i just wonder if the, if the elites have ever had to contemplate an actual political and military defeat thanks well i
3: think that uh, they are ones who realize that Putin actually, but Putin's propaganda machine is so very uh, developed that it can literally uh, make the win of, of, of basically anything. I mean, you, you already have seen that uh, Russia actually, last week, Russia annexed uh, the territories that it cannot actually control uh, and th- this is the thing that th- th- they can repeat, this reproduce that with. with uh, at the moment, when Putin will realize that that he can announce that Russia has won this, had won this war, and 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 the war is over. I mean, it's just a fantasy, but I, I'm sure that uh, it, it's one of the possible scenarios, and the people in the system do realize that. And the other important thing to know is that uh, even though they do not consume uh, propaganda uh, so much, I mean, compared to uh, general public in Russia, uh, but still they have this, uh, you know, uh, uh, th- those narratives uh, in their mind because they keep, uh, well, at least because Putin actually is... is, is uh, uh, reproducing them uh, in, in when he's talking to to uh his um uh, to, to the civil servants uh, at least it's what, what my sources say uh that they say that it is it is true and uh I think that the other thing is uh, the other important thing is that they consider themselves and and they consider Russia as the grand successors of the uh, World War II victory and they just keep, you know, convincing themselves sometimes that they are uh, the successors of, of that uh, old uh, heroic past and uh, they are trying not to, they, they're in denial, they try not to think of, uh, of a possibility of, of the defeat. And uh, I think that they do not. Uh, you mentioned the war in Afghanistan. I, I don't think that they even, you know, that I don't think that that they consider uh, this 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 war as, as they have this uh, magnificent skill of maneuvering and navigating everything that is you know un- inconvenient to them. So. I am not sure that they really actually you know have this the, the 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 reflections of the past.
0: Thank you. I've got just just a couple more. Um one one for me and one that one of our, our listeners very kindly put into the 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 chat bar on the Twitter space. Uh we do read all the comments that that, that go in there and and please do please do put uh, put comments in put comments and questions. Uh, and the question from the listener is what what is the motivation of these people to talk to you? Um, are they are they getting something out of the out of the attention that, that 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 you give them? Are they trying to clear their conscience? Just why why do they feel the need to talk to you? And separately, and so slightly clunky, and not 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 very linked at all. My question: um, We talked about these these arrests of the Wagner Group people in Moscow last night. I mean, do you think we would see any public displays of a power struggle inside? The, the, the senior elites in the, in the Kremlin or is it just, just not going to be visible to the, the common man
3: uh, well answering to the first question why do these people even talk to me uh, well the thing is that I mostly talk to the people who I know for a very long time those people are my old acquaintances my old sources and most of them, uh, they don't have their own agenda that they need to push through the media. So I spend many, I, I spent many years trying to build trust uh, between us. So that's one of the reasons, uh, and uh, I think that. Uh, the reason uh, the fact that they are talking to me uh, it's not a symptom of any cracks in the elite uh, I think it's more a sign of uh, atomization and they're in a struggle and as you said they're trying to clear their conscience too so I think sometimes I'm actually kind of a therapist for them and uh, kind of, you know, a person who helps them to save the, uh, you know, kind of attachment to the reality, in a way, I think. So, yeah, I mean, um, some of them, when I ask them why they do not quit, and why do they stay in the system, they say that they think it it can actually, the system can become worse, for Russian citizens if they leave because uh, then someone will replace them someone who can be worse than them who, who will abuse power uh, and when I talk to them and I ask them why they do not move to a different country is another thing that, that they, they say that it equals to suicide to them. So we are discussing this kind of questions too. And I think it's also some kind of, you know, uh, a, a telling thing about that, that me, about me being kind of therapist, kind of therapist. The second question, it was about uh, the, the the struggle uh, between, uh the uh, Russian military command. Uh, I think that we can actually uh, w- 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 the degree of the struggle is increasing. Uh, we can see that uh, uh, after the beginning of the mobilization, Putin um, he ousted sacked one of the uh, deputy ministers of uh, defense. It was it was on. It happened on the second or the third day after he announced the mobilization. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, we can, right now, what is going on, the, this attacks from Kadyrov, from Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, towards the heads of military command, I think that actually uh, they will find, uh, well, in this blame game, continuing blame game, uh, Putin will finally. I think there there is a chance that Putin will finally choose someone among military command. I mean, on a higher level, uh, that he would uh, sack and uh, make the, the the guilty, the guilty uh, of in, in charge of all those defeats that Russian army is experiencing. Uh, but the other thing important, another important thing to, to keep in mind is that Putin is a person who he, he does not, he, he prefers not to change, as they say in Russian, I don't know if there's such a saying in English, he prefers not to change horses uh, during kind of crossing the river. <laughs> so uh, it's it's really hard to predict what he's gonna do with with this ongoing blame blame game and, and, and but yeah I mean uh, he he's trying to carefully navigate uh, through this descent coming from his own uh, his own people like Kadyrov etc. Uh, and but but still it's it's really hard for now to 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 predict any any consequences of this.
1: Thank you so much, Farida. Thank you, Dom and Francis, for your questions. We're coming to the end of our time today. So just one very quick question from me. Uh, Farida, Vladimir Putin has been in charge of Russia for decades now, really. Um, do you think that this is his weakest moment?
3: Well, I think that it's, it is definitely one of the, his weakest moments because I don't think that there is a single uh part of the society that is content right now. I mean, including Russian elites. I don't think that anyone is is happy about what is going on right now. And actually, that is one of the reasons for that escalation that, that is happening right now, I mean, from Russian side. So, yeah, I would say that this moment is very, very difficult for him and that's the reason why this moment is the most dangerous moment actually. I don't want to you know kind of be this uh, most pessimistic person in the room, but I'm afraid I have to <laughs> because he uh, he cannot he, he does not he does not have the skill of losing and it's quite dangerous, I think.
1: Farida, is there anything we haven't asked you? Is there anything you, you, you think our listeners should, should know or understand?
3: I mean, I, I would only add that uh, we should all carefully uh, watch uh, the, what is going on in Russian society right now. Because, uh, well, as we all know, uh, Russian current regime is very strict towards the people who, show, who openly show their dissent. And still, we have seen quite many protests after the mobilization started in uh, Dagestan, in Buryatia, and other, other Russian regions who suffered from this draft the most. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it is uh, quite an interesting uh Thing to watch uh, after right now because uh, many people are, you know, kind of speculating about Russian separatism uh, that can be caused by this war. I'm not sure about this. I wouldn't say that there are signs, any signs of separatism, but I think it is very, very important and interesting to uh, to know how different Russian minorities what is their perception of of what's going on and, and and of of this particular moment of of mobilization when when P, when putin is asking these people literally to um, sacrifice their lives i mean he didn't ask for this for 20 years and this is the first time when uh, the russian government actually rec- recruiting people actively to join them in, in, in any sort of, uh, I'm sorry for this word, for any sort of activity, you know, I, I'm not sure that we can call uh, the war kind of activity, but it's, it, it, I mean, I, I, I think that this, it's kind of mobilization against demobilization that was happening for 20 years. So it's, it's a very interesting moment.
1: Well, thank you very, very much, Farida, for all of your time today and for ask, answering all of our questions. Um, we, you know, we brought you on to give us that insight into what the Russian elite might be thinking. And I think it's been absolutely fascinating and, and revealing listening to you and listening to you talk about some of the conversations you've been having. Francis, I know you have one quick update on Elon Musk, and then I'll go to everybody's final thoughts, please.
2: Sure. Thanks, David. Earlier this week, I spoke about Elon Musk's tweets on the issue of Ukraine. Now, as I said then, there's no reason to think that his analysis is any better than anyone else's. But I return to it now because there's been some updates in this space, because his arguments and the reaction to the arguments, I think, are indicative of broader debates that are currently taking place in Western media and amongst Western political elites. Um, So I think they are worth returning to and, and discussing very briefly So the senior United States Senator Lindsey Graham has commented uh, in reaction to the statements put out by Elon Musk, who was calling for there to be legitimate referendums in the four annexed territories of Ukraine. And Lindsey Graham has said the following. With all due respect to Elon Musk, and I do respect him, I would suggest he needs to understand the facts of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Suggesting we end the invasion by simply giving Russia parts of the country, after all the suffering, is dumb. It is also an affront to the bravery of the Ukrainians fighting to defend their homeland. In 1994, through the Budapest Memorandum, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons arsenal, the third largest in the world, in return for assurances their territorial integrity would be protected. It was an agreement signed by Russia that included protecting Crimea and the Donbass as part of Ukraine. If you want peace in Ukraine, which we all do, simply demand Russian honour the boundaries they agreed to in 1994 and withdraw their forces. To do otherwise is to legitimise a bait and switch by Russia and a signal to other bad actors to take what you want by force. If Elon Musk and others want to continue the world to be in chaos, then by all means capitulate to Putin and reward his aggression. A very firm, robust, I think it's uh, to say to Elon Musk. But Musk's reply, as I say, is also interesting because it, it underlines another trend of thinking. Quote, assuming you believe that the will of the people matters, we should in any given conflict support the will of those who live there. Most of Ukraine unequivocally wants to be part of Ukraine, but some eastern portions have Russian majorities and prefer Russia. Below is the electoral map of 2012. Blue is the pro-Russia party. And then there's a map which shows uh, in large portions of Ukraine voting for more sympathetic to Russian parties. But of course, what, you know, must miss is, and this is what people have been saying in response to him, is it ignores the profound shifts that took place in the country after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. But even more profoundly than that, it ignores the shifts that took place following the invasion and the atrocities that have been committed since then. But even if it were true, of course, that that there were large parts of the country that were leaning more towards Russia and wanting to belong to Russia, there are many reasons, of course, why people might vote for a pro russian party it doesn't mean that they're necessarily wanting to to join russia it might be a repudiation of the elite in kyiv it might be the candidates that have been put forward it's complex it's a complex democracy always is but this nuance uh, that we, of course, try and do on this podcast is bring in and inject some of the nuances into this very, very complicated situation seems to have been missed by, by Mr. Musk and is being missed by many commentators. So I just wanted to draw attention to it, not because I think Elon Musk is particularly uh, the, the, the right person to be articulating this point of view that he is, but because he is engaged with such a complicated argument and one that ultimately we all should be engaging in, I thought it was right to raise it.
1: Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Francis. Can I just ask uh, Francis and Farida for your final thoughts? What will you be thinking of in the next few days and uh, what would you want our listeners to go away and consider?
2: Sure. Well, we've talked a lot about high military strategy and politics today, and I just wanted to return very briefly to The human tragedy of what's going on in Ukraine, we're hearing reports, not yet confirmed, but reports that Russian occupation authorities are planning to declare school holidays to begin today. That's this being uh, the um, obviously the middle of the week, but it will continue until the 21st of October, supposedly to ensure security with the plan being that Hezon school children will be evacuated to Crimea. Now, as I say, that is not confirmed, but there is speculation that will be the case. And if true, it just speaks again to the horrors that are taking place on the ground. Children taken away from their schools, denied learning. These are things that will have ramifications for years and years to come. Personal tragedies as well as political ones. So I just wanted to draw attention to that human story today.
1: Thank you, Francis. And Farida, as our guest, would you like the very final words?
3: Um, I, I I just want to thank you for having me and I, I, I would share, I want to share with you what I'm going to follow carefully in the upcoming days. Uh, as all of you know, uh, Russian authorities organize this uh, annexation of Ukrainian territories, but uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is continuing and the Ukrainians, Ukrainian army continues to regain their territories. And the most interesting thing that I'm, uh, I'm following right now is that I, I wonder how Russian authorities will get out of a situation where they have no control over territory that they have claimed as their own uh, and it's it's uh, sometimes it, it, it can be funny, you know, to to follow uh, all those excuses that they are uh, that they are trying to uh, push right now through the media. So yeah, I, I would highly recommend everyone to to read those comments of Russian officials about the subject.
1: Well, thank you very, very much, Dominic Nichols, Francis Dernley, and Farida Rustamova, our guests, for your time and your thoughts today. Um, but just before I finish, Farida, how can if people listening today, if, if they want to follow you, want to follow your writings, where should they look and how do they follow you?
3: Um, well, my, my, my um, big articles are coming out on my sub stack. It's called Daily. Uh, and I, I publish uh, Russian and English versions of, of my articles there. And uh, I also uh, I have a Telegram channel. Telegram is a, a very popular messenger in uh, Russia. I also uh, have a Telegram channel that I would recommend to follow to those who can speak Russian a little. So, yeah, please, please follow those channels. uh, By following them, you're supporting my work. Thank you very much.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to make sure you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine the Latest is produced by Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and Maddie Drury. And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?